overlay. Go ahead and grab a seat. And as you're getting seated, why don't you grab your notes out of your handout. You will see that we are continuing a series called Blessing My City. And we started this series last week. It is more than a series. It is a blueprint for where we're going to go over the next two years. It's more than that. It's a campaign that we're seeking to get 100% of Overlake on board with in terms of a prayer commitment, a personal commitment, and there are, uh, uh, there's a financial commitment associated with the things that we're going to be talking about over this series. And so I want to really unpack it clearly. I, w- I want to make sure that I answer as many questions as I possibly can in in terms of laying out what we feel like God is calling us to go after over these next couple of years. And again, by way of history, if you're just kind of new to Overlake, you need to know that we have been very, very big about stretching and and reaching toward these mission opportunities that we feel like God is is bringing into our sort of realm of knowledge and, and saying, hey, this is what I want you to be a part of. We just came through a vision campaign where many of the wins and victories were primarily overseas. And what we want to do now is we want to spend the next couple of years focused on what it is that God's calling us to do locally right here at home, right here in our own backyard. So that's, that's what we're going to go out of. That's the blessing my city. Let me start with the foundational verse for this campaign. So here it is, Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. This is God speaking to the Israelites as they're being taken to Babylon. He says this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce Get married and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Let your daughters get married so they can have sons and daughters. Grow in number there. Don't decrease. Now check this out. Work for the good of the city where I have taken you as captives and pray to the Lord for that city. When it prospers, you will also prosper. Now you might want to underline those last couple of lines there. The idea is that we're to work on behalf of the city that God has placed us in. So where you live right now, the the community that you live in, the town that you live in, the the commercial center that you live in, the the place where you take your kids to school, the the workplace that, that you are in, these are your parish. And you are not there by accident. God has placed you there. God has sent you there. Some of you feel like I'm in captivity here. Like I, I get it. And God has said you are there. And, and while you're there, for as long as you're there, there are some things that I want from you. I want you to work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I've sent you. I want you to pray for the peace and prosperity of the city that I have sent you. And I want you to understand that as it prospers, you will also prosper. In its welfare is your welfare. And so that's the foundation. That's where this whole blessing my city comes from. It comes from that passage of scripture. And really, if you're gonna boil this whole thing down to something that you probably have heard before, you're familiar with, you could boil it all down to this idea of love thy neighbor. Love thy neighbor. Now, you've heard that before, you're familiar with that, even those who maybe have never really been to church before, um, we've all sort of heard this idea, this concept of love thy neighbor, and it is a concept that we find in the Old Testament of Scripture, it's a concept we find in the New Testament as well. So let's just take a look at those verses, Leviticus 18, or rather 1918, 
It says, this is the Lord speaking, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God's speaking to his people. He's, he's setting them apart from all the other nations in the world, and he, he's speaking to them. He says, look, I don't want you to bear a grudge. Just, just, you need to learn to forgive. I don't want you to go after vengeance. I'll, I'll take vengeance. You don't need to worry about that. He says, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he follows that up with, I am the Lord, lest you forget who is giving you this command. Right? I am telling you, love your neighbor. This is important. This is a big one. Don't, don't lose this. It's so big, in fact, that years later, when Jesus is on the scene, he's asked, what are the two, or what's the greatest commandment? This is what he, he's asked. Jesus gives the two greatest commandments. He says, the first greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then second commandment, he says, it's, it's the love thy neighbor piece, right? And you can see that on your outline, Matthew twenty two thirty nine. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, friends, Jesus teaches this. The Bible teaches this. Jesus models this. And yet, as folks who follow Jesus, we find it often very, very difficult to actually love the people who dwell right outside of our front doors. I found a quote this week. It says, don't wait for people to be friendly. Show them how. Right? that there's this proactive nature to what it is that we are called to, we're the ones that are supposed to take that first step. We're the ones that are supposed to model what loving our neighbors looks like. Now, what I want to do is I want to make this as practical as I possibly can. And so I'm going to show you a little neighborhood map on the screen. You'll see it in your, on, on your outline if you turn it over. It's on the back of your outline. This is a little neighborhood map. And you will notice that in the middle is your house. You're like, it doesn't look like my house. Go with me on this one, okay? It's your house. That's your house in the middle. And then there are these eight homes all around. And those are your neighbors. That represents the, the, the neighbors, the ones who are dwelling immediately outside of your door. Now, let me just give you some statistics, okay? In America today, on average, the statistics are these that less than 8% of the people dwelling in that center house know the names of the eight homes that dwell immediately around them. Less than 8% know the name, just the name of the people who live immediately around them. Let me say that again. Less than 8% of Americans know eight neighbors' names. I don't know how average you are. I don't know where you fall on that, but I'm just telling you, this sounds like a challenge to me. If you want to go one level deeper, less than 3% of Americans know anything uh, other than their names about their eight neighbors. So they, don't, they might know their neighbors' names, but less than 3% know anything else about them. And it's less than 1% of Americans have friendships with eight neighbors. Less than 1% actually have friendships where they know their name, they know something about them, and there's this mutuality in the, in the friendship. Overlake, this is an incredible challenge, and I want to bring it to you, I want to bring it to myself, that over these next two years, as a major part of us caring for our parish and blessing the city that God has placed us in, we take seriously the challenge that we are to love our neighbors, 
right? We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to care for our neighbors how we would want to be cared for by our neighbors. And we're the ones that are going to have to be proactive. Don't wait for them to be friendly. You show them how to be friendly and develop friendships, okay? So I, I do want you to understand that I I get it. Here we are in the Northwest, and not every neighborhood looks the same. I actually don't know any neighborhood that is sort of on a block like that where you know, you know, you got, you got, you got the people, you know, in front of you, you got the people on the sides, you got the people behind you. To get to the, the neighborhood behind me, I get in my car, and I drive about a quarter of a mile, uh, and, and I could get there, or I could hike through the woods uh, and, and, like, you know, come through their backyards, which is super, super creepy. I don't recommend this. So for me, I'm just taking this as a personal challenge that, that I want to take a look at my street. I want to take a look at the two neighbors on either side of me, and I want to take a look at the folks that live across the street, and then we have two side streets as well, and, and so I want to develop friendships even up into that, that region. So, so my neighborhood looks different than that map. I, I assume many of yours is going to look different than that map, but here's the, the practical challenge. I want you to take that home and I want you to be able to write the names of eight neighbors that live in your immediate vicinity. And if you don't know their names, then that's your starting place. Then it's time to introduce yourself. It's time to start getting to know. It's time to begin to develop those relationships. And then I want you to think about, this is again, you don't have to do this immediately. I don't want this done by you know, next Sunday. But I want you to think about what is God calling me to as long as I'm here the challenge is that we would move from being strangers to acquaintances, that we would move from being acquaintances to friends, okay? And so that's the map. Let's move from being strangers to acquaintances, from acquaintances to friends. And if you're filling in the blanks, there's, there's something about this whole thing that you need to realize, and it's this, that loving your neighbor is an art form. This is not a science. It's not going to be formulaic. It, there's a nuance to it. it. It's an art form rather than a science. And so think about this in terms of how you begin to care for your immediate neighborhood, for your immediate neighbors. Understand that, that there, there's an art form to caring, to friendship, to neighboring. And at the heart of it is this little word, empathy. It's going to require some empathy on our part. So I found a video, we found a video that, that speaks to this, so go ahead and watch this video. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? 
Um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. So what makes something better is connection. It's that willingness to get on the same level and to care and to foster that connection. And so what I want you to understand is when you think about right now, if you were to think about the needs of your neighborhood, they might not be immediately evident to you. And that's, that's okay. That's, where, that's our starting point. But just understand that the, the needs are there. And that there is a reason that God has called us to care for our neighbors and to love our neighbors. And so if you're filling in the blanks, there are a couple of things that we need to kind of take with us and meditate on, kind of follow through on. The first is the word care, that we need to care. Care is a choice that we make. It's a choice, actually, that we can make right now. I choose to care. I choose to care about my, na- my eight neighbors. I, ch- I choose to care about my parish. This is a conscious choice that I am going to make. I'm going to choose to care. I found a quote this week. Uh, it says this, don't be yourself, be someone a little nicer. Right? And it's, it's a challenge, right? Because obviously there's chaos and there's busyness and there's pace in all of our lives and we recognize that, but we need to make the choice. Overlake, I'm saying all of us, we're choosing now as we journey to blessing my city, we're going to make a choice that we care. And some of you are like, you know, I don't even know how to begin to care, then, then let me give you a great starting place. The greatest starting place that we, can, that we can launch from in order to care is prayer. So if you don't know how to care, you begin with prayer. And actually, this is a major part of our campaign. This is a major part of what we're going to go after over these next couple of years. We are going to take seriously that Jeremiah verse in order to pray for our parishes, to pray for our neighbors. And so on the back of your, your hard copy there, when you seek to try to write the names of your neighbors, my challenge is that you would keep this in your Bible and, or your journal and that you would consciously begin to pray for your neighbors. Learn their names and then you begin to pray for them. You're like, I don't even know how to pray for my neighbors. Let me give you some ways to pray. You can jot these down. Okay? You can begin to pray right now for your neighbor's health and for their wholeness. You can begin right now to pray for health and wholeness over their households. You can begin right now to pray for love, peace, and joy in their relationships. 
You know, if somebody finds out you're praying for peace in their relationships, for joy in their heart, they're not going to get angry at you. <laughs> Stop praying that I'm joyful. You know, like, I, I just can't see that happening. Health and wholeness, peace, love, and joy. You can pray for increase and blessing over your neighbors. Pray for increase and blessing. You see all these things that you pray, and what are you trying to do? You're just trying to love them with this outlandish, over-the-top kind of love that Jesus has for you. You want to pray for them. Okay? So we take, this, we take this opportunity, we say, Lord, you've placed us in our neighborhoods for a reason. I choose to care. I'm going to start to pray. The second fill-in is that you would begin to listen. You'd begin to listen to your neighbors. You begin to listen in the context of conversation. That's the only way you can listen, is in the context of conversation. So the challenge for us here in the Northwest is that we maximize opportunities to have conversation. Um, one of the resources I'm using right now is a book called The Art of Neighboring, and it talks about many different ways in which we can seek to foster conversation settings. Um, it includes ideas like simply choosing to play in the front yard with your children as opposed to always playing in the backyard. Uh, ways like when new neighbors move into the neighborhood, showing up with a plate of cookies and, and just an opportunity to greet them and introduce yourself. That you would invite neighbors over periodically for meals in your home. That, um, that you would host block parties during the summer when the weather's nice. We've got about 19 days a year we can do this, but we, we do this with great joy and gusto for those 19 days, right? We, we seek those opportunities, and then in those opportunities, we seek to listen. We care, and then we listen. And, and friends, what I want you to do, and I want you to think about this, and you'll, you'll see how it resonates. Listen for the needs that are being expressed, and then listen for the needs that, that aren't being expressed, that are just beneath the surface. See, it's, it's interesting because as you enter into this kind of a context, it'll be very rare that someone's going to say to you, you know, an elderly neighbor is going to say to you, I just really need someone to clean the gutters on my house. But they might say other things that trigger you to think, hey, you know what? I bet that would be a blessing. And then you can begin to do this third step, which is engage. Okay? Engage. So we care, we listen, and then we engage. This is not just good intentions, but this is following through on good intentions. And, and, and friends, just understand this. I know we cannot meet all of the needs in our parish. That is, that's not what I'm trying to get us to do, to walk around with some kind of a guilt burden, thinking that it's up to us to meet every need. That's not it. But I do think every single one of us can care. We can all listen, and we can all engage. And so we can step in the gap and maybe care for our elderly neighbor and clean the gutters or dog sit someone's house or take a, a meal to a new mom that's in our neighborhood. And we can't do these things if we don't know them, if we haven't taken time to listen and to engage. I found this quote from George Eliot. It says, people glorify all sorts of bravery except the bravery they might show on behalf of their nearest neighbors. Somehow we think that there are all kinds of things we can do in exotic locations that are beautiful and honoring to God, but the bravery that happens right next door, we omit, we diminish. And so the challenge, friends, is that we take this as a serious mission as well, okay? And so what I want to do is I want to show you, the, again, the map 
where we live, this is the east side, and the, the colors there, the, those are the places where you live right now. So I want you to think about what that map potentially looks like in two years when all of us take seriously this call to care for the eight neighbors in our neighborhood. You can see how much more impact can happen. You can see how transformative this could be for the east side. If all of us make a commitment that we're going to care, we're going to listen, we're going to engage, that we are actually going to seek to love our neighbors the way Jesus Christ calls us to. Can I get an amen? Okay, all right. It's, it's, this is going to be beautiful. So th- there's another arm to this, this idea of being a good neighbor. Um, it's led by Jesus himself. And if, we, if you think about the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is the one who saw and who cared for the folks that most of society ignored. So just think about Jesus as the one who ministered on the margins. He was the one who cared for those without homes or without jobs, those with chronic health conditions. He cared for those with leprosy, those harassed by demons. He cared for those. um, In fact, he included women into his ministry when it was just a man's world. And all of these things that Jesus did, it all sort of falls under the umbrella of being a voice for the voiceless. And so that's the arm of blessing our city as well, that we recognize that the voiceless live among us, and we are called to be a voice for the voiceless who live in our parishes. I'll show you a verse here. It's Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. This is an incredible work, and it's an incredible calling on our lives. And next to Jesus, I was thinking, who can I point to that that is such an example of this, like Jesus was? And the first name that came to my mind is a guy some of you are familiar with. He's a theologian, a professor, and a pastor. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer lived during the, the rise of Nazism in Germany. And in the mid-1930s, he was a professor at the University of Berlin. Uh, he, he was a professor of systematic theology there. And he was offered a, a pulpit by the National Christian Church. That's the church that we would call the Lutheran Church there. It was the state church in Germany at the time, ultimately run by Hitler. And, and Bonhoeffer refused that job because he wasn't interested in speaking from a pulpit where the Bible was on one side and Mein Kampf was on the other side. So he said, no thanks. Instead, he became a founding member of what was called the Confessing Church, which was Christocentric, just built on the more radically loving person of Jesus Christ himself. He refused state influence in his, in his church setting and said that that was the, the wrong way to go. And Bonhoeffer... Um, he knew that by taking this step, saying no to the national church and, and taking this step away into the confessing church, that he was going to be a thorn in Hitler's side. And so there's actually a, an episode in his life where Bonhoeffer was giving a, a radio address to Germany. Um, it was an anti-Nazi radio address. And halfway through his presentation, all of the power in the radio station shut down. And he knew that was not accidental that he was being a thorn in Hitler's side. And so what he ended up doing was leaving the country. He went, he he served as a pastor in England for a couple of years, and then he came to the United States. He went to seminary here. But ultimately, he realized that, check this, that 
Jesus had given him a country and Jesus had given him a parish and it was Germany. And so he could not stay away. Even though in America he was safe, he realized he had to return and to serve his parish and to care for his parish. And specifically, the reason why he went back was in order to be a voice for the voiceless. He, and he writes about this. He talks about, look, the primary call of a Christ follower is when there's a bully, the Christ follower steps in between and says, you shall bully this person no more. That for the person who has no voice, the Christ follower steps in and says, I will be your voice. The person who cannot stand, the Christ follower steps in and says, I will help you stand. This is the call of those of us who follow Jesus Christ to be a voice for the voiceless. Now, I want you to think about what Bonhoeffer was saying. He was saying, as a Christian man, he was saying, I'm going to return to Germany and be a voice for the voiceless. Who were the voiceless that were being carted off by the millions to concentration camps? It was primarily the Jewish community. It was also the Russian community, the gay community, and those with mental difficulties. And so Bonhoeffer came and he said, look, I'm going to stand in the gap. And I'm going to be a voice for the voiceless. And as he did that, he joined the Nazi resistance movement. And this was an underground movement. And as a part of this movement, there was an arm that sought to assassinate Hitler. They really felt like if they could take Hitler out, this whole nightmare would be over. Bonhoeffer was a part of that intelligence gathering movement there. And ultimately, he was caught. And I think he was caught because he was a preacher and not a spy. I think that's probably part of it. But he was caught, and he was put into his own concentration camp. And in Flossburg concentration camp, on April 9, 1945, he was hung at dawn. This was two weeks before Allied soldiers liberated the camp, and the war was over. So this Bonhoeffer, toward the end of his life, he did wrestle with whether or not he made the right decision to be involved in taking up arms against Hitler. He did wrestle against, uh, with that decision. But he never once doubted his call to be a voice for the voiceless. He never once second-guessed his call to return and to care for his parish that God had given him. And I want you to see that Bonhoeffer lived a hero's life, and he died a hero's death. And he followed in Jesus' footsteps by giving us a clear example of what it looks like to stand in the gap for those who cannot speak for themselves. Again, I want you to look at this verse from a different translation, Ephesians, or Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So friends, what we're Going after in the Blessing My City campaign, there are four expressions of how we want to be a voice for the voiceless right here in our local context. And so this is something that we're asking everyone to participate with us in. The first, if you're filling in the blanks, is that we want to expand Eastside Academy at Overlake Christian Church. Some of you are already familiar with this. It's a high school academy. It's, it's for high school students who are on the margins those who come from very vulnerable living situations, those who for whatever reason, whether it's substance in the home, whether it's uh, just instability in the home, uh, if there's been abuse in the home, whatever the reasons are, that, that these are students that Washington State education does not work for. 
And I was talking to the director uh, just the other day, uh, just an incredible uh, man, Michael, was telling me that he says, he says, Pastor Mike, there has been no one in their lives to speak for them. There's been no one in their lives to invest in them. And I said, well, then it is our privilege to step in and to invest in them. And so we've got a great group of students right now, and it's kind of that whole package ministry where it's involved in counseling, it's involved in mentoring, there's some recovery aspects to it. Student Ministries is wrapping their arms around these students, so there's kind of this whole person, plus it's a world-class education that's being offered. We want to double the amount of students that can come and be a part of that. So that's what we're going to go after over these next couple of years, expanding our Eastside Academy at Overlake. The second thing we want to go after is we want to launch a college-age ministry here at Overlake Christian Church. Amen. Yeah, I, I am very, very excited about this. Pastor Jake mentioned this a couple weeks ago. We're launching this the week after Easter coming up, and, and very, very excited. Some of you know I was a college pastor before I moved up here to Overlake 10 years ago. It's just an incredible mission opportunity that we have. Some of you, though, are confused. Why is this a voice for the voiceless? Um, college students do have a voice. The reason why it's placed here is, is just real simple. The college-age demographic is the most transient demographic in American society. So think about the ages from 18 to 25. They, they live here for six months, and they're in another state. They're here at this school. Then they transfer to this school. Folks are, you know, I'm, I'm here for a semester. I'm here for two years. I'm here for four years. But it's like it's constantly in motion. And so as a church, we're, we're investing in college students because nobody else is investing in college students. But I just want you to see sort of how this works. It really is a mission endeavor. You don't invest in college students because you think at some point they're going to be elders in your church. Although that might happen, the chances are kind of slim. You invest in college students because Jesus is calling us to. Amen. You don't invest in college students because their parents are going to start coming to Overlake. Although, you know what, that could happen. Chances are slim. You invest in college students because Jesus is calling us to. Right? You don't invest in college students because you think, you know what, they're going to start tithing and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> you know, it'd be awesome if some of you started tithing. That'd be great. <laughs> Woo! Singer. Hey, uh... I just want you to understand this, that we invest in college students because Jesus loves college students. No one else is investing in college students. The world has a great plan for college students. Satan has a great plan for college students. It's time for us to say, hey, you know what? God has a great plan. So, so we're going to invest in college-age students, 18 to 25. Very, very excited about that. The third expression here is we want to increase our capacity of special delivery. And many of you know this incredible ministry. It's been around for a long time. Overlake's been a part of every season of special delivery. And right now, you need to know what it is. It's a, it's a home for women, young women who are in the midst of crisis or unplanned pregnancy experiences. This is where their life is, where whatever choices have been made. Honestly, there's unconditional love and grace and acceptance. We just want to care for these moms, we want to help them walk through this process, provide a great opportunity for them to launch into the next season of their life in a really, really healthy way. And I couldn't be more pleased about what's happening. In fact, you need to know special delivery right now is not just full, it's over full. 
We've got more moms, more babies living in our facilities than, than really, you know, it, um, it's designed for. So I just want you to know that our, our heart is we want to expand not only the amount of moms and, and babies that we can care for through this ministry, but also we want to increase the support and, and, and uh, the, just kind of wrap our arms around even more of caring for them, launching them into a healthy next season. Okay? So that's what that's going to look like. And then the fourth is to provide transitional housing ministry. And I just, you can even write this down if you want. This is our dream. So we don't, we're just whiteboarding this. We, we just want to build space for us as a church to dream about what it could look like for us to provide um, a transitional housing ministry. And I'll just tell you a story. I'm going to actually change some of the details on this. I'm going to tell it in a vague way because I really want to protect the privacy of the person that, that is uh, this story. I've talked it through with our other ministers and and just recently, well, I'll even go back. You know, one of the heartbeats that Overlake has had for several years is we want to combat human trafficking. Amen. And we do this primarily overseas, but there's also a local expression of that as well. And so, so what happens when you combat human trafficking is you have these opportunities to care for those who are in the midst of it. And so here's a young woman right in the midst of it. And there's an older man who's oppressing her. He's given her a place to stay. He's given her young son a place to stay. He's given them food. He's providing for their needs. In fact, he's providing everything they need except human dignity. Meanwhile, he's selling her out for sex. And so a gal from Overlake has been sort of ministering to her and, and striking up a friendship, being a good neighbor, just like we talked about. And at one point in her journey, she just realized, you know, this is enough. I've got to get out of this scenario. And so she contacts this gal from Overlake and ends up connecting with a couple of our pastors at Overlake and says, I'm ready at great risk to herself. She takes her son and she gets out of that scenario. She doesn't have anything with her. She doesn't have any worldly possessions. There's no money in the bank. She's just running. And of course, and again, I'm not going to go into details, but of course, as you come out of a lifestyle that horrific, there's going to be needs associated, medical needs, psychological needs. There's just needs. It's a messy, messy reality. And so, you know, our pastors come and, and they try to take, take her in a local hospital and just, hey, you know, there's some needs here. We'd love to see if we can get cared for. And unfortunately, the medical needs were not emergency enough to admit. And the psychological needs were not dire enough to admit. And so the, the social worker on the case just made, a, made phone calls for a couple of hours and then came back and just gave this news, disappointing news, that hey, all of the beds are, are filled in our county tonight. We can offer you a tent city. Now, I just want you to see this. Here's the world saying you can have a roof over your head and everything you want to eat and I'll take care of the clothes that your boy wears and you can be safe and dry. You can have everything you want except for your freedom. And this woman says, no, I want to choose to see what the church has to offer. I want to ask and see if Jesus has something else for me. And the best we've got is a tent. She doesn't have anything except for her son with her. And we're just going to say, hey, go sleep outside for a while. See, I, I find that unacceptable. 
And so what I'm asking over Lake is that together we would begin to dream and we begin to plan and we begin to prepare about what it might look like for us to provide just some sort of a temporary transitional housing for those who have needs, kind of bigger needs than, than maybe we could just invite someone in, uh, you know, to our downstairs den. But, but saying, how can we really care for a whole person in a transitional way? And lest you think that this is not biblical, I want to refer you to the Good Samaritan story that Jesus tells. Because if you recall, Jesus tells the Good Samaritan in answer to a question about what? Who is my neighbor? How do I care for my neighbor? He's just said the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor. Somebody says, well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And at the end of the, the story of the Good Samaritan, what the Samaritan does is provides a transitional housing opportunity. Does he not? He pays for this person so that he can stay and get rested and get healed. And I think the church is being called for the same thing. So friends, that's, that's what we're going to go after. When it comes to being a voice for the voiceless, these are the four expressions that we want to pursue. And I just want to say each of these ministry expressions will contain some mess. I mean, they're all kind of messy. Uh, they're dense. The solutions for health and for wholeness and for wellness and for spiritual vitality, the solutions are there, but they are just as complex as the problems that they're addressing. So friends, we don't want to shy away from messy ministry. In fact, just the opposite. We want to jump right in, and we want to answer the call that Jesus has is, is given us, seeking to bring the kingdom where it's most needed. So as I wrap this whole thing up, I just want to say that where the enemy has harassed and bullied and oppressed, we are called to stand in the gap, to stand up to the bully, and be a voice for the voiceless. Amen. Now, as we end our time together, I just want to ask you to think about your own life for a moment. I want you to think about the different seasons of your life. With this many people, I can imagine that there are dozens and maybe hundreds of us that at some point in your life, you would have raised your hand and said, I am voiceless. My prayer is that someone would take a risk on me. My prayer is that someone would invest in me. My prayer is that, that there would be someone who would see enough potential in me, see through my exterior, see through my circumstances, see through my choices, and realize that I was worth reaching out toward. And maybe some of you, you have the experience where there was a teacher who believed in you, or there was a pastor who reached out to you, that maybe there was a mom or a dad, maybe there was a neighbor who believed in your potential. I bet there are thousands of these stories at our church where someone believed in me and it changed the trajectory of my life. But maybe some of you are still there. Maybe some of you still feel like, no, 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 I'm, I'm still there. I still feel like I am voiceless today. And if that's you, if you feel like nobody has empathy for you, if you feel like nobody cares about your life, if you feel like you, you have no voice, then I just want you to understand Jesus cares. I just want you to understand that Jesus will be your voice, that Jesus has empathy for you. And so I want to conclude by us looking at the heart of Jesus. So this is the verse that we're gonna end with, Matthew 9, 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, this is Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I wanna invite you to just close your eyes right now. 
I want to invite you to think about Jesus' heart, the compassion that he has. I want you to realize that Jesus has compassion for you. And not only does Jesus have compassion for you, but Jesus desires to show compassion through you. And friends, as we wrap this whole thing up, you need to realize that we don't, we don't love our neighbor. We don't seek to be a voice for the voiceless. We don't, we don't strive and give and stretch. We don't do these things in order to get Jesus to love us. Friends, he already loves us. He has already shown his love by dying on the cross for each and every one of us. He has already pursued us in love. He has already showered our lives with grace. He has already poured out blessing over each and every one of us. He doesn't have to do anything to prove his love for us. No, friends, we don't work in order to prove our love to Jesus. We work in response to it. And just as we have received his love freely, now we want to give it to our neighborhoods. We want to give it to our parishes. We want to spend it on behalf of the voiceless. And so, Jesus, we just ask you to help us to do that. Jesus, we ask that you'd give us the courage. We ask that you would shake us from whatever apathy holds us back. But help us to care. Help us to pray. Help us to listen and help us to engage on behalf of our neighbors. And Lord, where there are needs and where we sense those on the margins and those who are voiceless, Lord, would you give us the strength and the awareness to be their voice and to care for them as you would. We love you so much, Jesus. We're so thankful for this direction that you're calling us to go as a church. We ask that you would work in all of our hearts to make a difference on the east side. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen.